My friendships with, you know, progressive feminists, it's kind of funny in that, like, you know, I have the response of, ugh, men, we should give them electroshock therapy. Men, I don't believe that they have a problem. And at the same time, women are like, oh, they're no good men. Men are in their flop era. What's wrong with all of the men? I can't find anyone. And so it's like, well, maybe there's something going on then. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest, Christine Emba, just a quick note about the Unspeakeasy. Yes, our retreat in Denver, our first ever one-day retreat, is coming up Saturday, September 30th. So if you've been on the fence, now is the time to make your move. Go to theunspeakeasy.com, find out how to register Again, that is an all-women's thing. We have special guest speaker Jennifer Say with us, as well as some other surprise guests. And we're going to do our thing during the day. And then in the evening, there is a party and comedy show for everybody. So this is going to be unlike anything we've done before. So please be a part of history, theunspeakeasy.com. Okay, Christine Emba is a columnist at the Washington Post, where she's also worked as an editor. Christine writes about a lot of stuff we tend to talk about around here, at least stuff I tend to be interested in, things related to how cultural and economic shifts affect human behavior, especially in terms of dating and mating patterns. She's the author of the book Rethinking Sex, a Proclamation, and also the author of some very fascinating recent articles in the Washington Post about the so-called masculinity crisis. I don't know why we're calling it so-called. Let's just call it what it is. I've been wanting to have Christine on for a while, so I was really glad to talk with her about these pieces and much more. As always, if you are a paying subscriber, that means you can listen to the bonus version of the conversation where Christine stays over time to get a little more personal. Uh, You can do that by going to the Substack, megandown.substack.com and upgrading your membership or becoming a paying subscriber. And uh, in the meantime... Here is the main part of my conversation with Christine Emba. Christine Emba, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you so much for having me. We're in a moment in the quote-unquote discourse where we're seeing a lot of relitigation of the sexual revolution and certain aspects of the women's movement and by extension the so-called masculinity crisis is something people are talking about. You are very much in the mix of that conversation. People like Louise Perry, uh, Richard Reeves, Mary Harrington are talking about this. This is something that Sarah Hader and I talk about on our other podcast. Your piece in the July 10th edition of the Washington Post, I believe that was the date, was to my mind the most comprehensive, most incisive writing on this subject to date. So I want to congratulate you on that for <laughs> Thank starters. You. Wow. And there's a lot to talk about here, but I guess I wanted to open things up by just asking you why you find this subject so compelling. Oh, wow. That's, (laughs) that's a good question. Um, First of all, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. You know, I, how did I get into this subject really? Well, my first book is called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It's about exactly what you were talking about, the sort of promises and the promises that were perhaps failed to deliver by the sexual revolution, uh, especially in a post-Me Too environment. And I started out 
working on that piece by interviewing, just interviewing a lot of young women, but also a lot of young men. And women's stories ended up making up a lot of the book. But I was just fascinated by how many, you know, women had specific problems that they raised. They had particular demands and pretty incisive commentary. The one thing that I heard from men the most was just a sort of confusion, a sort of sense of, well, like me too has happened. And I, uh, I don't really know what to do. Like, am I, should I ask girls out? Am I not allowed to talk to women? Like, am I a bad man? I, I don't know what I, what's going on anymore. And I was just fascinated by that. And then, you know, in my own personal life, I'm, you know, a young woman in DC, you know, meeting men, like trying to date. And I was, again, fascinated by the sort of what almost felt like a a shift in the men of my peer group that was also reflected in our political moment. Again, a sort of sense of lostness and confusion, but also a real attraction to these figures or these movements who would tell them in no uncertain terms how to be, whether that was getting really into Jordan Peterson or being sort of sneakily attracted to sort of the, the edge lords of the MAGA movement during the 2016 election. And I just wanted to know where this was coming from. And had you grown up a sort of nice, respectable feminist? What, what was your kind of relationship to feminism? Um, so I, I don't know that I would say I grew up a nice, respectful feminist. I mean, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, my parents are actually both Nigerian immigrants. So we're not really wildly into sort of the, the intense socio-culture wars. Okay. So um, your mom wasn't like taking your Barbie dolls away and stuff like that. Or no, no, not. (laughs) I mean, except when I would cut all the hair off, which I did frequently. It's better than cutting their heads off. That's what most most girls do, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I don't know that I was, that I was steeped in, in the movement. I think in college, I went to Princeton, there was a sort of default de facto feminism that was in the air. You know, it was the future is female. Uh, I was on campus at the time of the the infamous Princeton mom, which may sound very insidery, so I can explain. Oh, I remember her. Do you remember her? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was a woman who, she wrote a, a letter to the, I guess, I think it was the Daily Princetonian, our, our student newspaper, or the Alumni Weekly, that was basically like, look, ladies, at Princeton, when you're an undergrad, this is the one time in your life you'll be surrounded by men of your caliber. You should find a husband here. Otherwise, in 10 years, <laughs> you'll be screwed, basically. Okay, I have so many thoughts about that now as an older person, but Same. tell me. Okay, we should say, okay, how <laughs> we should say, how old are you now? Because you're, you were, this was not that long ago. No, I'm 35. Okay. And yeah, so that, that happened my senior year of college. And I remember very vividly, like all of the women on campus were outraged by this. And she, in the piece, she talks about how women who don't get married young risk becoming spinsters. And a a big group of my friends actually made kind of tank tops, like frat tank style that said spinsters in training um, and wore them around campus, which I don't know, maybe this was a sign of my future inklings, but I just refused to wear that. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. It's like, I don't it need was, to curse myself. It was myself. the uh, proto pussy hat there. Yeah. 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 So, and we should say, so it was Princeton mom, was she a graduate of Princeton herself? And she, I know she had a son there at she the had, time, which is had, mortifying. Right. It was so mortifying. She had two sons that went to Princeton. And I'm not sure if she graduated from Princeton herself, actually, now that okay. you mention it. Okay. So, all right. So this was going on. And at the time, you were in your mind like, well, okay. So you were not wearing these spinster tops, but were you thinking like, this is ridiculous. Uh, the world is my oyster. There's, you know, I'm going to have my my pick of men, you know, going forward. Or, or this is not something that I need to concern myself with. I mean, I I have more of a sense of like this. This seems like probably something I don't need to concern myself with to to that extent. And I mean, this was also, you know, like maybe one or two years later, Lean In came out, mm-hmm. and a lot of my friends in sort of our our freshman and sophomore years of life, I guess, like our first years of life outside of college, you know read lean in together and like would have discussion circles talking about it and that sort of thing. And the idea, I think the general sense was of boundless possibility and there's no need to worry about sort of anti-feminist grumps like the prince and mom and to assume that women could have it all. Yeah. Okay. So this was very much the girl boss kind of corporate feminism. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so you become a journalist, you enter the working world. When did you start to sort of notice that there was something going on with, with men that seemed worth exploring? Um, I think that, I mean, I think it was a slow realization. So I went to a Jordan Peterson book tour stop in, I think, I want to say 2018, just because I was, you know, my beat at the Washington Post is <laughs> very broadly ideas in society. And I just kind of wanted to figure out who this guy was, this YouTube star, basically, who was suddenly on everyone's feeds. And I went with actually a Washington Post colleague, a male friend, and it was just a fascinating experience. Like when I arrived there, first of all, it was probably... 85% male. Uh, and the only women there were like moms who had brought their sons or long suffering girlfriends who had come with their boyfriends. And actually everyone just assumed that I was the date of my male colleague, even though that was not the case. <laughs> but I was, I was kind of taken aback at how fervent the, the love for Peterson was. And I write about this in, in my men are lost piece. You know, I was kind of crap talking Jordan Peterson in the audience before the show began, basically. And this young man swung around and was like, Jordan Peterson changed my life. And he was completely serious. And then obviously watching the Jordan Peterson performance, which is, was strange to me and that he was, you know, saying, pretty basic stuff in my opinion, but in really sort of stern fatherly tones and the audience was just thrilling to it. It was like, there's, there's something going on here. And then at the same time I had like male friends in my own group of friends who had gotten into kind of almost conspicuously male activities, I want to say. I don't know if that's the right descriptor, but you know, suddenly there were guy friends of mine who just like gotten really into lifting and were challenging all of their male friends to lift with them. And they were Hmm. drinking gallons of milk. This was also a little bit, it was also a little bit right coded. 
because this was a thing I think that like uh what do we call them? I guess alt right dudes. Okay, yeah, I was do. gonna say so right coded. You mean like political right? Politically coded. right coded. They drink a lot of milk. The, uh, this is not. I, I have not heard this one. So well, I feel like they stopped doing this, but I okay. think it was like to prove that you weren't lactose intolerant. Because oh, they're not soy boys. They're, they're drinking actual boys. milk. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit confusing. I don't know. I, I never really understood that part. But a lot of weightlifting, a lot of activities that seemed conspicuously designed to sort of solidify their masculinity in a way that seemed like a little thou doth protest too much. And I was kind of like, again, what's what's going on here? There's like one friend of mine actually who was like the tallest and the smartest guy in this group of friends. And like at a certain point he seemed to have like a group of younger, more awkward acolytes who were just sort of following him around on the internet and in life, like lifting with him because they wanted to like be guys like him. And I was like, wow, you guys need a different role model, I guess. And it's weird that this is the only one that you can find, but sure. But yeah, men, I mean, as I say in the, in the first line of my piece, like men, especially the young men I knew were just getting weird. You know, we had the, a spate of incel shootings. And then of course we had the me too movement and the me too moment. And I think that is when a lot of men became first a little bit apologetic and then not apologetic at all and really pushing back. I think that's a little bit confusing the connection between incels as a, you know, any kind of cohesive group and sort of mass shootings or mass attacks. I mean, I know Elliot Roger, who was the Santa UC Santa Barbara shooter, did have connections, you know, to some of these groups online. Um, but it's not entirely clear like if if, if what he did was like a direct outgrowth of that group. I think that they kind of took him on as a as a kind of a figurehead after the fact. And I know there was um Alex was Manassian, I think, Manassian. that once drove a van into a crowd up in up in Canada and he's had that connection. But I feel like there's a, a perception somehow that that incels are like a terrorist group. And I don't think it, that's quite true. Well, <laughs> I I guess you could say like hashtag not all incels. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think the incel phenomenon is, you know, these men who feel like they are owed sex and companionship from women and they don't have it for whatever reason and they're angry about it. And not all of them will take out their anger on women in public. Like not all of them will act out, but you know, some do. And especially around the, the time of, the Elliot Roger attacks and Alec Manassian's attacks in incel communities, the more sort of violent actors were hailing Elliot Rogers as the supreme gentleman. Like that's what they called him. And so he was a figure of celebration. And yeah, I, I do. I, yeah, the violent outgrowths of the movement weren't, you know, were not every everyone who identifies as an incel but there certainly was a sense of anger that often turned outwards yeah and i think a lot of these manifestos they tend to be like just a total word salad and you know very like confusing. most manifestos yeah. yes yeah they're not known for their you know sort of narrative cohesion but uh i think uh didn't the christchurch new zealand shooter have some jordan peterson references maybe in his manifesto oh, but I'm it was just sure. kind of all over the place. Yeah, I feel like because wasn't Jordan Peterson's 
uh, 12 Rules for Life book sort of banned temporarily in New Zealand. Oh, um, wow. Around that time. I yeah, that. I actually wrote something about this. Of course, I can't remember what I wrote, but uh, yeah, there was something like that. Anyway, I don't mean to get off on this because that's not really <laughs> what, your, what your piece is about, but I have found it really interesting the way, just in the even in the last year or so, I feel like there are more women speaking up about this and really wanting to understand what's going on and really trying to tease out the connection between the sexual revolution and and the women's movement as it sort of now plays out with what's happening to men. And I, I sometimes wonder if we're seeing so many women talking about this because like only women are allowed to talk about it. Like if a man talks about it, it's just going to look like male tears or sour grapes or whatever. But like women are giving given a little more, a little more credence somehow. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the case. I talked about this in the piece a little bit and I, I have talked about it uh, since in, in interviews, but I do think that I was, I was and am in a, a fairly unique position to write the piece that I did for exactly the reasons that you point out. I think that, uh, there's almost a, a branding problem in talking about men's issues because so many of the people who talk the loudest about, you know, the problems of men or male loneliness or whatever is going wrong with men tend to be a little bit on the questionable side, you know, you have like men's rights activists and, and Andrew Tate for men who talk about this. Richard Reeves has said this pretty eloquently. If you bring it up, you're looked at, you're giving kind of a side eye, like, Oh, you're like you're one of those guys, <laughs> like one of those guys who wants women to be back in the kitchen. So, so they're loath to, to discuss it. And yes, I mean, a, a man, especially I think a, like a white male being like men are, men have so many issues right now. Everyone's like, really? You, Chad, have problems. Yeah. Talk yeah. to the rest of us. Yeah. And I mean, yes, I'm I'm a woman and I'm a, a black woman at that. Um, and so for for whatever like odd identity issues that are prevalent in our discourse today, I think that I, I have like a little bit more leverage to say that kind of uncomfortable thing because in some sense it's not really benefiting me. <laughs> like I'm I'm not going to be helped if if men, you know, improve or become less lonely, except that I will. And that's, I think, in the end, perhaps why I'm, I'm interested in this subject. Yeah. So I have a theory that the people who are sort of most interested in this subject are women who are looking to partner with men, like relatively young women who have some stake in this because they want to find somebody that's their equal or that would make a, a good partner, a good provider, or a good father, whatever it is. And so you have those women talking and really nobody else because the quote unquote high value men, and I'm using that as a term, you know, that's their the own terminology. Of, yes, yeah. exactly. I'm not, you know, not literally. So, you know, you have these kind of high status, high value men, the ones, the exact ones who've benefited the most from the sexual re revolution, the kind of guys who you were at Princeton with, Right they don't really notice that this is going on because it's, they have all the, all the goods, right? Like they're not, you know, they are going to college and they are getting degrees and they are moving out of their parents' house. And so they're not really what we're talking about. So, so they're not kind of either interested or noticing. And then the guys that we are talking about can't really talk about themselves. So it's the women and it's actually the single women who are thinking about this the most. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And there are statistics actually that bear that out. So I actually helped introduce uh, this survey that was 
produced by the Survey Center on American Life and AEI a couple months ago. It actually came out on Valentine's Day, which in hindsight was pretty dark. But one of the, (laughs) I mean, it was, but one of the key points that the survey found was that young women expressed less interest in dating than men did. And close to half of college educated women reported that this was because they were having difficulty finding a partner who quote unquote meets their expectations. Mm -hmm. And so this number was higher for, it was higher for college educated women than non-college educated women, which does suggest like a class component to this too. And women just cited this as a factor, this not finding someone who meets their expectations far more often than men did. Like, in fact, nearly four in 10% of single women said this compared to less than a quarter of men. Mm -hmm. So clearly women are noticing that the good men, I'm saying this with like air quotes right now, are, are not there when they want them. Yeah. Okay. And then this brings us to the hypergamy idea, another pet concept of the manosphere, mm-hmm. but I like thinking about it too. So, okay. Am I, tell me if I, am I getting this definition wrong? Hypergamy just has to do with women wanting to marry somebody of a higher status or equal, right? You know, whether, you know, usually in terms of education, like they want to go across or up and men want to go across or down. Is that pretty much it? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So now, so with what you just described, the answer will be, well, as long as we have this like hypergamy in place, that that is that as a sort of like evolutionary adaptation is not going to map on to women's advancement in society for very long because you're going to have all these women achieving and they're doing better than men. We know this. They're going to college at a much higher rate than men. There's all kinds of things that have changed just in terms of the socioeconomics of this. Women are either going to have to figure out how to be alone or partner with men who are maybe less educated or are you know in the working class or doing a different kind of job. What do you make of that? Wow. Well, you know, it's figure out how to be alone. It's it's funny that you use that phrase because it just pinged something in my mind. In my book, In Rethinking Sex, I talked to a woman who says exactly that line. And I kind of just hadn't thought of it in, in this context until just now. And she's talking about exactly this. She's just like, I'm, I'm so tired of dating these guys, these like jerks who don't measure up and so many of my friends are too. And I think we just have to grapple with what it might mean to be alone. Because the fact is that they can have, women can still, it's not maybe not ideal, but we don't need men as much as we used to. You know, we can have a baby on our own if we want. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, that's factually true. Women, yes, women can have children on their own. Women have been in some ways liberated from economic marriage by the fact that they can now have their own careers and own their, you know, get, get their own money and don't have to depend on a male partner. But I do think that most women, the majority of heterosexual women do actually eventually want to find a good partner and spend their lives with one. And so, yes, in some sense, the, this is made difficult if men are sort of dropping out in a sense. And we are seeing that like men are, yes, as you said, men are graduating from college at lower rates than women. Men are, 
you know, making less. Um, men are retreating into gaming or pornography, etc. There are just, you know, sort of fewer, fewer men per successful woman who is trying to settle down. And yes, if it's true, and I, I do think it does tend to be true that women tend to want to marry either equally or up, then there's, there's simply fewer men to go around. And actually, I think that is also more evident in cities like the one I live in, you know, in Washington, D.C. and places and, you know, New York, where you'll notice in the dating pool that women are overrepresented uh, compared to men. And it does change behavior somewhat, too. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk more about uh, dating in in the bonus portion. But I know I always say New York is a city of women. (laughs) Because, I mean, at least when it comes to the sort of educated classes, okay, obviously not across the board, but it's just a place where the the nature of the industries and the professions, you've got publishing, you've got media, you've got fashion, they tend to just skew very heavily female. And uh, something like the finance guys, this is just my completely anecdotal observation, but they, they tend to like partner up pretty young and marry and move to the suburbs. So there's actually very few finance guys that are over 35 or so. Have you noticed this? Huh. Yeah. This I, is just my little pet theory, but but so but actually as you were talking before, I was thinking about this because okay, so I feel like even 10 years ago the sort of line was okay, uh ladies, well, you're so fancy with your educations and now you're complaining that you can't find anybody. You're just going to have to like you know, marry a plumber. And guess what? He probably makes more money than you do anyway. So, so win-win. But maybe now, like the plumbers of the world are pretty resentful and playing video games and not being such great partners anyway. I don't know about that. I <laughs> I hope not, but I'm just, I wonder if, it, I, because I just think that there it used to be the kind of this glib dismissal, like, oh, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're a lawyer. Don't think you're going to necessarily, you know, if you can't find another lawyer, there's lots of guys out there who are great guys, but they're just in the working class. And I wonder if that's something is changing about those guys too. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that the, I think that the sort of crisis of masculinity is actually a cross class phenomenon and is affecting different class. Like it, I think it's affecting actually all of the classes, but differently in some cases, I think that in the working class, we have still seen wages fall even for sort of like professional workers, like plumbers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that maybe this message that, well, women, you can have your fancy degree, but your degree won't keep you warm at night. Like maybe you should just get used to dating someone who doesn't have a college degree has not quite been taken up by all groups. I think that I've seen the call, the call for highly educated women to consider dating less educated, but probably still great men four years now. And I think that that call has been taken up at at different rates among different groups. I actually hear that most often said in the Black community and also most often heated there. And I wonder, this is actually just total speculation. I wonder if that's because, you know, there has been a dearth of men um, in that community for longer, just due to the effects of mass incarceration, among other things. And so in some sense, like maybe this is a group that has had to confront this this problem earlier. And I don't, 
I feel like I don't hear that as much in sort of like elite circles almost. There's almost a sense that, you know, I, women, women can, women still can have it all. Or if you can't have exactly what you want and what you think you deserve, you should just go it alone. And I think the idea of being able to go it alone is really wealth based, actually, because again, women, of course, women can have children by themselves using, you know, artificial reproductive technology, but it's really expensive to be a single mother on purpose is actually a very expensive prospect. Um, and only, you know, certain women can afford to do that if that's their choice. Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. No, being alone is a privilege. I mean, there is there is great privilege in thriving. If you can thrive alone, that takes a lot of resources. And I think you're absolutely right that that piece goes missing from the conversation. I mean, I want to back up a little bit here. I mean, you know, Richard Reeves has been on this podcast and a number of others, and we talk about this a lot. But, you know, do you essentially subscribe to the logic that says, you know, part of the reason this is happening is because society has become, you know, the, all, the, a lot of manufacturing jobs have either gone away or been moved offshore. So, like, the, the things that men used to be able to do if they weren't going to go to college necessarily have been eliminated at the same time. The skills that are valued have to do with sitting still in class and focusing, and girls tend to be better at that or they are better at that from a younger age than, than boys are. All that sort of thing is has contributed to a sort of I don't want to say feminized society because that sounds like Jordan Peterson, although I don't think he's entirely wrong about that. There is just a kind of baseline lack of masculine kind of sensibility uh, that we didn't have 50 years ago. Do you kind of spend time thinking about that stuff? <laughs> Do I? Um, <laughs> yes. No, I, I think that Reeves and other actually, you know, sociologists and economists are right on the mark when they talk about this. I mean, there used to be just a certain set number, not a set number, but, you know, a pretty decent number of roles and jobs that favored what we would think of as kind of masculine skills and traits. So, you know, factory jobs or jobs that dealt in strength. Yeah, physical strength. Physical yeah. strength. And many of those have gone abroad or gone away. And or are replaced by jobs that, you know, favor, yes, like sitting down and, and moving your AutoCAD around, jobs that favor soft skills and social skills. And I mean, we just see this also in the direction that the economy is going, you know, the the sort of highest paying jobs and the, the jobs of the future, one might say, are in kind of what Reeves describes as the heel professions, you know, health, education. These are these are jobs that involve you know, being emotionally attuned to other people, these like soft skill jobs don't necessarily rely on what we see as traditionally masculine traits or the sort of physical and emotional traits that are favored by masculine physiology. Um, they aren't jobs that reward aggression, say, or risk taking or, you know, high testosterone, basically. And so we find that, you know, women are filling these roles with great success and men seem to find them harder to get into. And also for whatever reason, not whatever reason, I mean, we know many of the reasons, um, including stigma and the idea that they're seen as female jobs, but find it 
less interesting or less willing to get into those fields. Yeah. I mean, again, and and you've talked about this a lot. You've written about this a lot, as have I. I mean, just the whole kind of vernacular around toxic masculinity and, you know, male tears and all of this kind of stuff, I feel like that has compounded it. Like it, it, all of these things sort of happened at once, right? Like we lost manufacturing jobs, the kind of, you know, just the, the economy changed, sex roles changed, the women's movement came. And at the same time, as women ascended, they still sort of took it upon themselves to like, you know, kind of playfully, the sort of playful misandry, ironic yes. misandry, where, you know, <laughs> making making fun of men and, you know, in, in a way that assumes that men still have so much power that it's like, okay, it, it must be punching up mm-hmm. um, to, to say these things. And, and I f- just feel like all this stuff kind of just happened at once and it just created this just very strange moment. Yes. And it was a really fast moment. I mean, to go back to sort of the beginning of the conversation, what my feminist upbringing was like, that was also my moment too. You know, first we had the the sort of girl boss lean in era where it was like anything men can do, women can do better, literally. And then yes, within a couple of years, I remember suddenly a wave of sort of joking, but not joking misandry, you know, where exactly as you said, there were sort of like the mugs that you could buy that were male tears yeah, and, you know, cross stitches that said band men. And it was kind of the, the Jezebel ascendant era where it was like really fun to just sort of crap on guys. And then I think after the Me Too moment too, during and after Me Too, there was in many senses sort of a, a justified anger at men and what men had wrought. You know, we saw all of these reports of just horrible things that men had done to women and and were angry and spoke up about that. I mean, even like later after that, I think both Richard Reeves and I have written about this. In, in 2018, the, the APA, the American Psychological Association, uh, and this was so at, during the height of Me Too, released its guidelines for practice with boys and men. And it described how quote unquote, traditional masculinity is on the whole harmful. Like that was their recommendation for psychological treatment for boys and men was to say that traditional masculinity is bad. It's bad for you. And there was a sense that men are toxic, men are bad. This was just sort of the, almost the given in any conversation about gender. And while it may have felt justified in the moment, I think it did have the effect of making a lot of men feel stigmatized. You know, it's it's just not a winning conversation to to begin a conversation with someone being like, "So, you're terrible. How do you feel about that?" It's so weird. Like, would they have said that traditional femininity is bad as well? Like, well, I, they didn't. So, but maybe they but like, okay, the only I'm just trying to like steel man this a little bit. Like, maybe okay, I can see them like, okay, well, you know, traditional like old school, you know, sexist society masculinity is something that we need to move past. Okay. And then, you know, same thing if, you know, you know, traditional femininity, girly girl, helplessness, all that kind of stuff, assuming that you're weaker, not speaking up for yourself. If we're going to kind of put that under the traditional femininity umbrella, then we shouldn't do that either. But I, I feel like they left that piece out. Well, I think, yes, I think they left that out. But I think the reason why this conversation started to happen at that moment was because it was a moment of looking at perhaps excesses of men and excesses of masculinity, especially post Me Too. And that was what was just very visible. 
Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to talk about. And for a number of reasons, including the fact that the, the feminist movement, you know, has pushed women forward a lot, but is still, you know, not, not complete, I would say. Men still do hold a lot of power in the United States and elsewhere. Women still aren't seen as ha- being completely on top and having as much of an effect, a bad effect as men did or do or seem to, I would say. But what do you say to the people who say, well, that might be true in certain quarters of power. Yes, there are still more men, you know, making laws and in Congress and all of that. But the fact is that it's a pretty female heavy culture that we're in. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm I'm that person actually who would say that. Not necessarily that it's a female heavy culture per se, but I think that it's very easy for us to, you know, look at men at the top, men who are doing well. You know, all of our presidents have been male. You know, the vast majority of, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs are are male. I think, you know, there's a stat that I have in the piece. I can't remember the the exact number, but like they're more CEOs in the Fortune 500 named like Mike, Jim, or David, I believe, than there are women at all. It's easy to point to the men at the top who are doing well, and they're still there. But most men are not CEOs. Most men are not president. And I think for men who are not at the top, who are not doing that well, it feels they don't relate to the success that those men are feeling. And in some senses, it probably makes them feel somewhat worse that they aren't succeeding in the way that they thought they would or that they're supposed to. And I think especially for younger men right now, millennials and Gen Z, it feels, it can feel, and some of them, you know, I interviewed a lot of young men for this piece that I wrote for the Post. Some of them would say this outright, like it feels crazy to be accused of being you know, a member of the patriarchy and saying that all of society has been sort of shaped to fit my needs when no, actually like women outnumber me in my college classes. Women always did better than I in school. There are all of these scholarships and mentorship groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for women. And I'm being left behind. Actually, I don't feel like I'm on top. So what has it been like for you covering this subject? Do you get like flack from your friends? Is it hard to get stories through? Do you have to like convince your editors that these are subjects worth covering? (laughs) It's been interesting. I mean, I, I quote a friend in the piece, you know, who I told, I told her that I was writing a piece on, on men and sort of men's issues. And she was like, what issues? Maybe we should give them electroshock therapy for their hysteria. And I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of aggressive. Interesting. Uh, no, not so much sympathy there, I see. <laughs> but, it, you know, it hasn't really been that difficult to push through with editors because I do think that there's sort of more recognition of of the idea that there's there's something going on with men. You know, we saw it in the rise of Jordan Peterson and the rise of Andrew Tate. Graham Wood in The Atlantic wrote this very fascinating profile of Ron's Age Pervert, who I also talk about in my piece. Yeah, I actually just, I know you've mentioned him. I I just stumbled upon him. Can you explain who he is? Yeah. Can I explain who he is? Can any of us? Um, He started off as a, an anonymous, pseudonymous um, Twitter uh, personality. 
basically, who went by the name Bronze Age Pervert and was famous for his Twitter feed, which was kind of just a mix of sort of homoerotic pictures of like ancient Greek statuary and like the the bodies of like beautiful ancient Greek men and kind of alt-right to very hard-right messaging. And then he wrote this book called Bronze Age Mindset, which is sort of a bizarre manifesto of sorts uh, on how to, you know, be the perfect Bronze Age man. And it involved, you know, sun and steel. And it was sort of like Nietzschean, um, like amoral, like, I, I don't even know how to describe it really. Um, so I, I'm, I'm assuming this was not published by a mainstream publisher. It was not published by a mainstream publisher, but it got so much traction online that it was like a bestseller on Amazon for some time. And then it got even more traction when it was written about in the Claremont Review of Books by Michael Anton. And it basically became, it seems like a must read for young male, disaffected male staffers in the Trump administration. So like the Bronze Age ideal of basically the Ubermensch who was destined to rule the world and, you know, stomp on the weak, effeminate bug men, is his term, not mine, of the modern era. Um, this sort of thinking has been taken up by our young political classes, which is very frightening, actually. Anyway, it turns out that he is like a, a maybe a Romanian grad student, but he's still writing and still has a lot of fans and like all bros has a podcast. Okay. Okay. So this is just like this cartoonish version. A cartoonish of version masculinity. of masculinity. And this is actually being taken up by the younger generation of politicians. Okay. That yes. is terrifying. Yeah. Pretty seriously. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. I didn't mean to to derail us there, but like, do you, okay. So your friend uh, was not necessarily, you know, on board with this. Like how, like you are a millennial though, like you're steeped in this. What kinds of conversations are you having with your friends these days, especially your female friends? Do they think that like you're crazy to be covering this stuff? Well, so, I mean, I would say that this this one friend that I mentioned was not sympathetic to the plight of men. Uh, and I think a lot of progressives and people on the left tend not to be. And I think that that's a problem because, you know, if there is a vacuum sort of in masculinity and young men are sort of looking for a positive vision of how to be a man, the left is going, if the left says, you know, oh, there's nothing to it, actually, in fact, masculinity isn't even real, you know, gender, gender is a construct. They're going to find their answer somewhere else. And the people who are most vocal about saying, no, there is such a thing as masculinity and this is how you do it are often people like Bronze Age pervert with a very strong point of view that is not necessarily good. But in the context between, you know, something and nothing, something is going to win every time. And so I think in writing, in writing this piece, I would say that, you know, often, my more progressive friends and progressive readers are more skeptical of my taking on this question. But the response I got from readers, especially male readers, was was pretty overwhelming, actually. Incredibly positive. I thought that I would get a lot more pushback from men, actually, uh, in writing this piece. But instead, I got so many emails and notes from men that were like, wow, this, you know, pulled together a lot of things that I think I've been like struggling with. And I I didn't really know, I didn't have words to put to 
what was going on or older men being like, oh, I'm, I'm watching my, my son, my nephew, my grandchildren try and figure this out. And it feels like nobody is talking about this and we really need to, to have this conversation. And then, you know, even for in my personal life, in my, my friendships with, you know, progressive feminists, it's kind of funny in that, like, you know, I have the response of, Ugh, men, we should give them electroshock therapy. Men, I don't believe that they have a problem. And at the same time, women are like, oh, they're no good men. Men are in their flop era. What's wrong with all of the men? I can't find anyone. And so it's like, well, maybe there's something going on then. Yeah. And you asked for reader feedback um, in your in your essay and you got an enormous amount of responses. And, and in fact, you did a like a little video thing where you went around and um, literally interviewed men on the street. Men on men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if these were just, you know, the nature of the men that were selected, but there was a lot of, you know, there were a couple kind of gender nonconforming guys and, you know, people speaking, um, there's a very broad range of responses. So I'm wondering if you can like talk about what, what it was like to kind of just walk up to these guys and ask them how they felt about their own masculinity. Yeah, it was actually really, it it felt a little bit silly, but it was actually a very fun, a fun project. And I was surprised by how many men were a, just like very willing to talk to me about this and how they always started their response with a little bit of, um, Insecurity is not the right word, but they were always, they always first start with, you know, I'm not sure. Like the question that I asked them basically was, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Is it harder to be a man today? And at first they were always like, you know, I don't, what does it mean to be a man? Actually, I don't really know. But then, you know, they had a take. And I, I asked, I also asked this question actually in the course of the, the essay too. There was like a small call out in, the men are lost essay asking readers to write in and tell me like, who is your ideal of masculinity and what characteristics do they embody? And there too, I was surprised by how eager people were to respond, you know, like call out, call out boxes basically are an iffy proposition at the best of times. But this one, you know, almost 350 people responded and not just responded, like people wrote multi-paragraph essays about, who their masculine ideal was and like how they felt about being a man or what a man should be. And surprisingly, or at least actually not that surprising to me, but I think surprising to those who would say that, you know, again, gender is a construct. There's no such thing as masculinity. We should all just be good people. There were some very specific characteristics of what being a good man looked like that came up again and again in these conversations which did, you know, make it feel like there is perhaps a specific ideal of masculinity that we would do well to encourage. Yeah, Barack Obama came up a lot. Mr. Rogers came up a lot. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> now, do you think that's a selection bias there with your readers? I mean, I think it's a selection bias a little bit in that it's like Washington Post readers, sure. But I think that the characteristics that they named, you know, being honest, doing your duty, being responsible, looking out for people who are, you know, weaker and more defenseless. They continue to be reflected in like the, in a range of people. And like, whether it was somebody who said that, you know, their ideal man was their grandfather who served in the Navy with honors, 
or their ideal man was Uncle Eero from Avatar. Like it was the same characteristics that came up. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost like there's not an opportunity to have those kinds of traits. I mean, that's what I keep taking away from this. It's not that they are not able to be that kind of person or they don't want to. It's like the the climate, just the landscape is just not there somehow. Well, so a good friend of mine, um, Leah Labresco Sargent, she writes a subset called Other Feminisms. Um, she, I was talking to her about this and she actually put that question to me and I found it very interesting. Do men have the context today in which they can sort of form and use these so-called masculine traits. Because it was interesting seeing how many men wrote in about, you know, oh, my father or my grandfather served in, you know, in the Gulf War, World War II, and, you know, carried his his platoon mate off of the battlefield and won a Purple Heart, or, you know, was in this sporting event. Um, and showed his masculinity by, you know, being brave in this event somehow, or like, you know, he cared for his entire family while, you know, working from the age of 15. And it does seem, you know, going to go back to kind of what you were saying about how the economy has shifted away from, you know, strength jobs or jobs that would have traditionally favored men. It does seem like there may be fewer of these contexts in which to, you know, do these kind of feats of strength and care, whether it's the Boy Scouts not going camping very much anymore, and in fact, not even being the Boy Scouts, being co-ed, to a lack of male spaces and male sports to, yeah, a lack of of martial needs, which is actually a good thing, I would say. You know, it's, it's good that we are not in the midst of a world war, but then I think it just becomes, you have to be more it would suggest that men have to be more deliberate and find more deliberate ways to become men or be initiated into masculinity. Yeah. They should just decide that they're going to either learn how to work on cars or do like home renovation. I mean, those things are never (laughs) going to go away. Men, if you're listening, I really need some home renovation help actually. So I'm telling you, that's one thing. The most successful, highly credentialed, high earning woman in the world will buckle at the knees at the sight of any guy who can do some, you know, home repair. Unfortunately, contract work. Embarrassingly true. Yeah. (laughs) A friend of mine used to say, a friend of mine used to say, nothing scares a man more than uh, a single woman with an old house. (laughs) <laughs> so that maybe it shouldn't be scary. You should see it as an opportunity. It's a, totally an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> well, so before we wrap up, I, I want to touch on on your book. It came out last year, Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And I thought this book was so interesting and it, it really like highlights, I think, certain generational divides because so I'm a Gen Xer and a lot of my criticism of this kind of Jezebel you know, the, the Jezebel 2.0 anyway, the original Jezebel was brilliant, but the, you know, the kind of like, you know, male tears, toxic masculinity, feminism, uh, you know, I, we tend to be in my age group, like, oh, you know, suck it up, ladies, get tough. Not everything is so traumatic. And, you know, sometimes you got to have some bad sex to figure out how to have good sex, that kind of thing. But I do think that we tend to forget just how dramatically sexual encounters have changed, the effects of ubiquitous pornography. And you talk about that in the book and you make a really, I think, original point, which is that there's been so much emphasis on consent 
whatever that means, that we tend to think like, okay, well, if we've gotten consent, then anything goes and therefore nothing is going to be damaging or negative. Yeah. Um, so I mean, rethinking sex is kind of a, <laughs> a two thesis book in some, in some ways. It is a critique of what I describe as uncritical sex positivity and the suggestion, I think that, you know, yeah, anything that you consent to that, that the sexual revolution was actually just about women being able to say yes to everything and say yes to more things. And anything you say yes to is good. You know, consent theory, exactly what you described, that consent makes everything good. And also just questions, you know, the idea of, of the sexual revolution. And, you know, I think ask the question, are there sort of stories that we've been told or myths that we, that we hold about sex and gender and the feminist movement that are not serving us actually, you know, is where we've ended up post feminist movement, post sexual revolution, actually where the, the early feminists were hoping we would go. Is this the solution that we, is this the place that we really wanted to end up? And I would, I would suggest no. But yeah, a lot of it is about a critique of just consent. And I think, I think what you say about generations is really important because I agree that, you know, not everything is trauma. In fact, that we, that we overuse the word trauma and that, you know, often we, we learn by making mistakes. But I think the, the bar is really different these days. The sort of mistakes or bad experiences that you might encounter in sort of what you would think are everyday dating scenarios have really changed. And that has been the effect of, you know, dating apps and the sort of mindset shift that they imply and give people the, the sense of disposability that they inculcate. And also people whose sexual education has been shaped by pornography to a, a surprising extent, you know, like there's bad sex, sure, but there's bad sex. That's just like, you have a sexual experience where you don't really gel with the other person. And there's bad sex when you're in bed with somebody and they suddenly start choking you until you almost black out. Like those are two different experiences. As a Gen Xer, it's just mind blowing. It's just, we don't understand it. I don't, like, I mean, I understand, I guess, like, the origin of sort of, you know, erotic asphyxiation. But it's the idea that somebody would just do that randomly or that that would be attempted, like, in an early encounter. It's just, like, I cannot get my mind around that. And I, well, and I talk about uncritical sex positivity and the idea that, you know, the false idea that's actually contradictory to the original definition of being sex positive but that's held today is that like to be sex positive means that women should be open to anything. It should always be up for it and always exploring and that you shouldn't, you know, yuck anybody's yum, which is a, a Dan Savage, a Dan Savage term. You know, you shouldn't, you should always be good giving a game. Oh, right. Yes. The yuck, you shouldn't be the yuck in anybody's yum. I, well, I, you shouldn't yuck anyone else's I, yum. Oh, I like, get it. You shouldn't <laughs> shame someone for their <laughs> desires. And so oh. You know, maybe someone just like really likes choking and who are you to judge them? And, you know, on, on one level, it's like, okay, I get where you're coming from in that judgment and shame and stigma have been used to, you know, hurt and repress people over time. At the same time, I think that it is actually 
important to be able to say that some things are good and some things are bad and some things you you don't do to someone in a first encounter um, and actually, you know, kind of take a true moral stance on what, what good is. And I think that we're really shy about doing that today. I think that we have a really hard time making judgment calls for a number of reasons, but I talk about that a lot in the book too. Yeah. And the book was published by a conservative imprint, um, a conservative publisher. Is that, did you have a hard time selling the book to like a more just traditional publisher? Um, so, I mean, it was published by the Sentinel imprint of Penguin yeah. Press. So actually still pretty mainstream. And I didn't have that difficult a time selling the book. I think though, that probably my editor at Sentinel, Bria Sanford, was more open to perhaps some of the more countercultural takes than some other publishers might have been. But I mean, I don't know, actually, right? Because I, I sold the book to her and then I wrote it with her. Yeah, no, no, no. I bring this up because this comes up more and more um, in conversation with other writers because, you know, those of us who are kind of, you know, either liberals or old school liberals are kind of questioning a lot of the kind of, you know, conventional media wisdom, we're finding it hard to get traction with... Um, mainstream media. I mean, I, and I was also going to ask you, you know, you write for the, for the Washington Post. I mean, you have a, a very big platform and you could not get more MSM than that. But a lot of the people who um, are kind of in this space, people like Louise Perry, Mary Harrington, others are doing so independently. And so I constantly have this conversation. People ask, well, you know, if I, if I publish this book with the conservative imprint of this, you know, bigger house, or, you know, if I, you know, God forbid, have to self-publish, is that going to like mark me for life? I think the average person doesn't care who your publisher is. I mean, people just normies don't even notice that. But, you know, there is a, there, there is a fear, I think, still of being perceived as not sufficiently on the left. Yes, that's interesting. I I see where you're coming from. I mean, I've been at the Post for eight years, and I started as an editor and then transitioned to being a columnist. So I was I was well ensconced early on. I would say that said, I think my editors have been quite friendly to my perspective and my takes, as it were, in part because they are kind of contradictory to a lot of other stuff in the mainstream media. And I think that there, I actually think that publishers are becoming more, not less friendly to sort of heterodox takes. Yeah. Well, they're going to have to be (laughs) because there's a huge audience out there. Exactly. And I think they're beginning to realize that. And I also think that we've maybe begun to reach like peak cancellation in some ways, you know, when Elizabeth Gilbert, like just pulled her book about Russia. Oh my gosh. That was like set in Russia. Because I don't know what was, was going in, on there. I, I, I don't know either. About that. <laughs> but I think, I think like people are really beginning to realize that's kind of insane, frankly. <laughs> that said, I also do think that I, I like to, or I try to write in a way that is legible to both the right and the left. And that takes both visions into account. Right. I mean, <laughs> this is like this is such a, a stupid sounding phrase, but some of my best friends are extreme, <laughs> extreme progressives and feminists. 
at the same time, you know, I'm like a, a practicing Catholic. And I, I sometimes think of my writing in some sense as a, a work of translation almost and trying to explain to one side or the other or both like why one might think the way that, you know, a more traditionalist, a gender traditionalist might think on the question of masculinity or why someone who is religious might actually be against abortion. It's not because they just hate women, you know. It's not it's not about the cruelty. That that, yeah, that phrase is fact. driving me crazy lately. Yeah, for some people the cruelty is not the point. But I think I think taking a pose of not being aggrieved, you know, not having as my starting point like, oh I'm I'm so upset that people aren't listening to me and I, I feel ostracized. But just like getting getting to the point, I think, and trying to talk reasonably with both sides is, is what I try to do. Yeah. And you don't talk about race really at all that I've noticed, but you are a black woman. And one thing I have noticed in this heterodox space is that there are not a lot of black women uh, talking. We have a lot of black men, people like Coleman Hughes and John McWhorter and, you know, John Wood. And I've often wondered if like you're getting it both ways. Like you're getting pushback from the the feminists and you're going to get pushback from black progressives. And and I wonder if that's something that you've had to reckon with. Um, I mean, I write about race sometimes and I write about it more when it's more salient. Uh, I did a podcast with our columnist, the post columnist, Perry Bacon Jr. Just an incredible name. Love Perry. About the affirmative action decision just a couple of weeks ago. but. Honestly, it's just not my topic of most interest. I, I think that there are more interesting things to write about. And also I find it, I have noticed that it's very easy for black writers and especially black female writers for whatever reason to be pigeonholed into being like, oh, here's a racial thing that's happening. You write about it. And I don't want to be pigeonholed. Uh, so I try and write about what I want to write about. I think that perhaps there is more pressure on black women to to represent black women and more progressive causes and spaces and to I think feel more allied with marginalized groups. But I think that's kind of neither neither here nor there. I mean for me the reasons why I haven't written about race the most are just because like I it's not the most interesting subject to me. Yeah. I don't I why are there not more I also think that there's been a sort of wild pushback to the word intersectionality in conservative spaces and in heterodox spaces, but actually intersectionality, which simply means that like different facets of your identity can interact and like you can like create situations that are more than the sum of their parts in some sense. I think it's, I think it's a really I think it's a true phenomenon, actually. And I think as a Black woman, in some sense, it is, I do find myself being like more aware of certain of the, the, how can I, I don't, how would I describe this? Um, the lived difficulties and realities. Of, Are you trying to not say lived experiences? <laughs> No, not oh, okay. no. <laughs> Can you say uh, difficulties? Okay. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know. For some reason, like I, I know a number of black men in the 
in the more heterodox spaces. And I think it's, they find it easier to sort of abstract uh, different questions out in a way. Well, they kind of pick a lane, right? Yeah. And I, I find that very difficult. I find that much more difficult to do because it's all part of it. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not explaining this very clearly. <laughs> I think about this a lot because I do, I feel like um, kind of in this, I hate the word space, but I don't know what else, this kind of like ecosystem of kind of, you know, counterintuitive thinkers or this heterodox sphere. There's kind of the women that talk about women stuff. And then there's like the people of color who talk about that stuff. But I I can imagine that it would be hard for like a black woman. And maybe, maybe this is not true, but it just like, it seems like there would be so much pushback. Like, you know, your, your, your feminist friends are going to get mad at you. And then also like your black friends are going to get mad at you. And what what are you going to do? I don't think it's that actually. Like I'm not really worried about people getting mad at me per se, but actually I think that, you know, I, this may sound harsh, but I do think in some, for some people in this space, like a way to get traction can be to deny the fact that racism is still a serious problem or sexism is a serious problem. And like, that's the way that you get traction by being like a, a black person in this space and being like, actually it's, it's great. It's fine. And I just, that's not true in my experience as a black woman, as a black person who is also a woman, a woman who is also black. And so I'm not going to say that. And that doesn't maybe like give me as much of an opening in this space. Um, because like for all the, for all the pushback that I can give to sort of glib feminism and, you know, as annoyed as I can be about like the anti-racist baby or whatever, like it's still very meaningful to me and a, a very important and very true that like racism and, and sexism are actually still huge problems that we deal with every day. Like that, it's, ju- it's just the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're not going to go edgelord anytime soon. Sounds like. Alas, no. <laughs> that's where the big bucks are. Unfortunately, I know, I know, I, <laughs> I know. Trust but you and me, me both I have this problem. <laughs> I know, I know. Nuance does not pay the bills. People no. love it, but uh, yeah, people don't even love it. That's the thing. Oh, they say they do, but yeah, maybe just who knows what they say behind my back. <laughs> but yeah, all right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna keep you for some overtime and and talk more about more about dating. Oh boy. So people, uh, if you want to hear that part, you can become a a paying subscriber. But I guess just, you know, my last question, do you like see real shifts here? I mean, what do you think of like, there's like the trad movement and there's women like, you know, really trying to like think hard about the sexual revolution and what kind of lives they want to live and what they want for the men in their lives. Like if, if you look down the road, say 50 years, what do you envision? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I do feel like there are major shifts happening and I'm not, I'm just not sure where, where we're going to end up actually, what direction we'll go, especially as technology continues to evolve. I mean, just in the sort of dating relationship sphere, I've noticed a huge shift towards, um, away from apps after everybody kind of OD'd on the apps in the past decades. Um, when it comes to like this question of men, um, I do actually believe that people are beginning to wake up to this as a problem and are a little bit less in, in denial. Um, there's been like much more uptake and discussion on 
the question of masculinity and whether men are in crisis. I think there's more awareness that just in general, it's sort of social instability is real and meaningful and has real and severe downsides. Uh, and our society needs to figure out what to do there. But what we'll end up figuring out is totally unclear. You know, like the U.S. Surgeon General identified loneliness as a major American crisis. But what is the policy solution for loneliness? Well, it's going to involve AI is my fear. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Christine, we're going to keep you for some bonus. But in the meantime, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm just such an admirer of your work. And this piece is terrific. And um, people should read your book and read your columns and everything else. So thank you. I hope we'll talk again soon sometime. Yeah, would love to. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Washington Post columnist and author Christine Emba. Her book, Rethinking Sex, A Proclamation, was published last year, and you can find her work in the Washington Post, of course, as well as on her Substack. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, you should become one now because Christine stays over time to get a little more personal, and uh, we continue our conversation, so you can do that by going to megandom.substack.com and um, upgrading your membership or joining. What else? Unspeakeasy Denver retreat, Saturday, September 30th. It's going to be great. Please sign up now if you haven't done so already and you've been thinking about doing so. Also, we have a few spaces, I think, left in our Poconos retreat. That is October 23rd through 26th. This is our luxury spa, sanity spa and regular spa retreat with special guest speaker Kat Rosenfield. And, um, you know, space is limited for these things, but maybe I'll just squeeze you in. So if you're interested in that, theunspeakeasy.com, find us, ask about it, and we will talk. Okay, I think that's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.